There are some people that you really love. They're in your family or they're a dear friend. And yet, no matter how much you love them, they just seem determined to drive their life right into a tree. Uh, There is Dan, who despite growing further and further from his wife and despite the pleading of his older children, won't stop drinking after work each night. There is Kelly, who despite the warnings that she's going to regret it later, continues to spend and finds herself in more than $30,000 worth of credit card debt. And then there's Josh, your best friend from college, who has this cycle where he, he hooks up and then he shacks up and then he has this emotional, heartbreaking breakup over and over and over again. Uh, We're in the middle of a a series right now called Those People Skills, where where our goal is to try and grow and learn uh, how to deal with the difficult people around us. Uh, We believe that the scriptures are full of wisdom of how to deal with with the difficulties of life in general, but in particular with with people that we love who are doing things that we struggle to deal with. And and today, we're we're focusing on on self-destructive people. The goal for us is to get some practical application for how to love the self-destructive people in our lives, but also the overarching goal for this series is not just to get some practical application on some truly difficult issues, but for us to be reminded of how deep and how fully God loves us. Because really, when we delve into how to love difficult people around us, what we have to also recognize is that God goes to immeasurable lengths to love us despite our difficulties. And so it's about being equipped to face what's in front of us, but also growing in our knowledge and appreciation for how each and every day God the Father through Jesus Christ puts up with, forgives, and walks with us. Throughout this series, and today's no different, uh, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. And perhaps one of the most famous Proverbs comes from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. It's a famous proverb, but you're not going to find it on any gift cards at the Christian bookstore, okay? It says this, like a dog returns to his vomit, it's a pretty picture, (laughs) is a fool who repeats his folly. The Bible likes to talk a lot about fools. Uh, Fools, from a biblical perspective, are people who continue to do the same broken thing over and over and over again. Um, In one sense, the Bible says that all of us are fools. All of us have this this deep brokenness within us that causes us to choose these these sinful urges and impulses over and over again in our lives. But then, and this is what Proverbs 26 is talking about, but then there are are certain moments and certain people where, where the foolish behavior goes to another level, where despite the pleadings of people who love them, despite them they should know that there are better choices to make, that there's a more beautiful way to live. They keep choosing something truly harmful to them and others over and over and over again. And despite the fact that there are people around them who are pleading with them, who are grabbing them by the shirt collars and saying, why don't you stop this? Why don't you choose something better? They just keep returning to the... Now, now there are a lot of reasons for this. 
One of the things that Jesus was fond of saying was basically this. Um, Behind the unhealthy fruit is a broken root. There is a much deeper issue going on in the life of the person that you love who is truly self-destructive. In in general, there's usually one of three things or a combination of things. Uh, Sometimes it's just plain immaturity. Other times it's, it's illness. But lots of times, it's pain. Sometimes the reason the person in your life is being really self-destructive is because they haven't lived enough or long enough to know that there are consequences for their actions. And there's really only one way to find that out. Other times, the reason the person is being self-destructive is because there is a, a physiological or medical thing going on in their life, that they're ill and they need help. But oftentimes, there's pain. That there is some deep need, there is some, some deep hurt that they're trying in a backwards way to address through their dysfunctional behavior. A lot of times it's just pain coming out in unhelpful and harmful ways. Now, I say this to you not so that you can go home and diagnose the people around you who are being self-destructive. What I don't want you to do is call up your cousin who can't keep a job and be like, hey, Pastor Matt told me why. It's because you're hurting and you're lazy. You're hurting and you're lazy. Don't do that. That will not be helpful. Will not be helpful. Here's why I say this. And I said this last week when we were talking about negative people. We said that the source of their problem is fear. A lot of times it's fear that, that leads to negativity. The reason I say this is because ultimately their self-destructive behavior is an outgrowth, albeit in an excessive way, of a struggle that all of us share. What Christians believe is that there is this deep need inside of each one of us to be connected to our Creator. And until that ultimate and deep need is met, truly and fully met, that we will try to fill that hole in a whole lot of self-destructive and unhelpful ways. Really, it comes down to idolatry. We try to make something in our life God trying to get it to to fill a hole that only he can fill. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And and so I share this with you that ultimately the self-destructive behavior flows from pain, not so that you can walk around judging the people around you, saying, oh, you're hurting, you're hurting. No, that will just make them hurt more. I say this so that ultimately, whatever action you take with the self-destructive person around you, it can flow from empathy. Their struggle to heal is one that I share. We are all hurting. We all need the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And what they're doing is really ultimately an attempt to meet that deep need just in all the wrong ways. So now the question becomes, what do you do with the person in your life who is maybe immature or ill or let's actually focus on pain. What do we do about it? Here's the first big thing that we need to recognize, is that all people are part of a system. All people are part of a system. And when I say system, what I mean is a a network of relationships, a network of relationships that's family and friends. And typically, in a healthy system of family and friends, what happens is when one person in that system chooses some unhealthy behavior, the rest of the system is supposed to respond and revolt against it. 
and saying, no, we don't allow that kind of behavior in this system. But what can often happen is that when destructive behavior gets repeated and repeated and repeated because the system is also made up with imperfect people, they kind of learn to accommodate the bad behavior. The system learns how to walk with a limp that their destructive behavior creates. So yes, you can't stand their drinking. You are tortured by their spending. It's ruining your potential for a retirement, but you have learned for the sake of the whole system how to cover over it, how to learn to deal with it, how to learn to walk with a limp that their destructive behavior creates. I think of it like this. When I, when I was young, um, and I was, of course, living with my parents, I had this bad habit in our two-story home of taking my stuff, be it my school bag or my shoes, whatever it was, and putting it right on the stairs. Rather than carry it up to my bedroom where it belonged, I would drop it on the stairs. There's some mothers nudging some sons right now. <laughs> I would put it on the stairs. And, and for a while in my teenage years, my parents and my siblings, they would say, why is your stuff on the stairs? Take it upstairs where it belongs. Why is your stuff on the stairs? But you know what happened? Eventually, everybody in the house learned how to walk around it. And eventually, I think they almost stopped seeing it because they just became so used to it. And the only time they would recognize it is when somebody else came into our house and they noticed all of my stuff on the stairs and they'd be like, why is all this stuff on the stairs? And then my parents would be like, oh, that's Matt. He always does that. Now here's the thing, just a little side note. Wives never get used to the stuff on the stairs. So once I got married, my wife was like, why do you put all of your stuff on the stairs? Are you lazy? And I'm like, no, I'm not lazy. Why take it up when it's just going to have to come back down? I'm a creative problem solver. Also, I, I just see things differently. Like, you see stairs. I see shelves we can walk on. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> when self-destructive behavior happens over and over and over in the life of someone you love, it's not just because this person has, has chosen this self-destructive behavior. It's also because everybody else in the system has learned to walk around the stuff on the stairs. And if there's going to be a change in this person's life, at some point, at some point, the, the system has to revolt and say, no, we, we won't allow for this anymore. Stuff has to move. But, but until the system revolts and stops accommodating the idolatry, stops learning to live with and adapt to how they're trying to deal with their pain, they will never have to deal with how they're dealing with their pain. The system that bemoans the destructive behavior actually can create an environment that insulates them from the bad effects of their behavior. And so the system has to revolt and say, we won't accommodate this anymore. So, so ultimately what has to happen is that the self-destructive person in your life, they have to reach a place of... Um, and this might seem like a counterintuitive phrase. They have to reach a place of, of beautiful brokenness. Of beautiful brokenness. 
Some people call this place rock bottom. Uh, A therapist might refer to it as the gift of hopelessness. (laughs) The Bible talks about this as being thoroughly and completely broken, where you are at the end of your own efforts, and you recognize that apart from the intervention from the outside in others and in God, apart from the intervention of others, you are completely lost. You are at the end of yourself. And let me just make clear that from a biblical perspective, brokenness is good. Rock bottom can be a very good place to be because if you're the person who's been in self-destructive patterns, when you're finally at rock bottom, when you're broken, you're at the end of yourself, what it means is that all of the denial that has fueled your self-destructive behavior, all of the denial is done. And all of your your unhealthy energy has been spent. And now you are ready for God to do his work of making you and turning you into something new. And actually also listening to all the other outside resources that are there to help you and transform you. In large part, this is what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes, which we heard earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Jesus says some things here that, 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 that seem contradictory. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That, that's brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's a strange word to use, blessed. But what Jesus is saying is this, you are blessed when you're broken because you are seeing yourself with honest eyes. The facade of your own wisdom and your own ability is finally broken and you are ripe and you are ready for what you truly need, which is him. So if there's going to be any change, they have to get to the place of being absolutely at the end of themselves and saying, what I'm doing is ruining my life. I I tell this story and I can't help but think of when I was uh, six years old and finally learning how to ride a bike. I was a very independent six-year-old, surprise, surprise. And my dad was was teaching me how to ride a bike. We didn't have training wheels. I don't know if he thought they they were... uh, uh, a little too easy way to learn, but my dad was against training wheels, and so I was on this, this Schwinn bike with a banana seat being pushed down the road by my dad, and he's running behind me, and I'm balancing it, and, I, and I'm starting to get it, and so being the independent six-year-old that I was, I was like, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. I don't need your help. I can do it by myself. I can do it by myself, and so he let go, and I'm going down the street by myself, and I'm like, yes, I don't need anyone, and then I look behind me, and my dad is gone. Like, he has left completely. I see him in his car pulling out of the driveway and leaving, like quite literally leaving. So I'm on the road riding my bike by myself for the first time, and my dad is in his El Camino, 1983, El Camino, and he is driving down the road. And I think, fine, I don't need him. And then all of a sudden it hits me. I have not been taught how to stop. (laughs) And so I did what what any self-respecting rider did, and I laid it down in the ditch. And in that ditch, I had an epiphany for a six-year-old. I realized, you know what, maybe, maybe I can't do this on my own. Maybe I need some help. 
And later on, I remember recounting that story to my dad and saying, Dad, you know, you taught me a life lesson that day. You know, I, I shouldn't be so quick to push off the help of others. I, I hit rock bottom in that ditch. And my dad, this is what he said to me, he said, I wasn't trying to teach you a lesson. I just got called into work and I had to go. But here's what the self-destructive person in your life needs. They need to be at the end, at the end of themselves. They need to be in the ditch. They, they really do. And so part of you loving them means you asking this question, what do I have to do to make sure that I am not in the way of them experiencing the gift of hopelessness? If I'm part of their system, what do I have to do to make sure that I am, I am not standing in the way of them being broken in the ways in which God wants them to be broken? It's a tough question to ask because maybe you're part of the problem or you're part of what keeps them from seeing the problem or feeling the, the, the implications of their problem. So, so I, think there's, I think there's a handful of things that you, if you're in a system that has someone who's in, uh, and this is so hard to talk about, because we all have it, but it's so hard to admit. If you're part of a system where someone is engaging in some deeply self-destructive behavior, there's three gifts that you can give them, okay? You need to give them the gift of encouragement, the gift of confrontation, and the gift of freedom. Now, here's what I mean by that. Encouragement is this. They need to know that you are for them, that you are rooting for their health and their wholeness and their well-being, that you love them, and that you see a picture for their future that is so much better than what they're settling for now with their self-destructive behavior, and that you want that for them, and you believe in that for them. They need your encouragement. Because after a cycle of self-destructive behavior, their view of themselves is probably really, really low, no matter how proud and arrogant they seem to be. Second, they need your confrontation, which may seem contradictory, but it's really not. What they need to know is that the self-destructive choices won't be allowed anymore by you. That you can't stop them, but you will not in any way be party to them at all. That what they're doing is not acceptable to you or anyone else that loves them. They need to be confronted with that truth. And lastly, and this is the really hard one, They need to be free to fail. They need to be free to let the choices they're making and the self-destruction that they're engaging in fail them. For them to feel the full weight of their poor choices. And that's really hard to do because, because you... You've gotten used to picking up after them. You've gotten used to fixing the finances after they go on a spending spree. You've gotten used to, to picking them up after every single heartache and heartbreak. You've gotten used to, to walking on eggshells when they come home drunk and angry. You've gotten used to all those things. You've gotten used to making life okay for them, even though they're doing things that are not okay for them or for you. But, but if they're... They must be free to fail before they will freely choose to be different. Unless they are free to fail and feel what their choices are bringing about in the world, they will never freely choose to be different. And so what giving someone the gift of freedom looks like, it's this. It's this. 
I want you to be better. But you have to want it more. I want you to be better. But only you can choose that. You don't have to choose it. You're free to ruin your life. (laughs) But I won't help you do it. I won't pick up the pieces. I won't clean up the mess. I won't won't lessen the impact. I won't do any of those things. You, You are free to fail. If you want my input, I'll gladly give you my input. I'm not going to let you harm me or hurt me. I love you. I'm, yes, I'm putting up a boundary, but this boundary is a bridge. If you want to live a certain way, you can walk across this bridge and be in my life. But I'm, I'm giving you the freedom to live over there, doing your self-destructive thing, and feel the impact of your choices. So that you might experience the beauty and the gift of brokenness. That is so hard. And there might be something inside of you, especially you moms, I get it, who is saying, but, but that, that sounds like giving up on them. No. This is, this is not being mean to them or hurtful to them. This, this, is, this is loving them the way Jesus Christ loves you and the way he loves me. This is how Jesus loves us. Jesus enters into our world where we are We are trying to meet our deep need for being connected to the creator in all kinds of broken and bad and destructive ways. And he comes to us and he says, I am for you. I love you. And I have something bigger and better for you than you could ever imagine for yourself. I knew you before you were knit together in your mother's womb. And I came to this world and I lived for you, died for you, rose for you. And now I forgive you and I choose you. I am for you. But at the same time, he also confronts us with the truth. He gives us the law, and he says God is real, and he won't be mocked by how you live. He won't be ignored in your life. You ignore him, and you mock him, and you disregard him to your own destruction and your own peril. And then he sets us free. Free to make our poor choices, to do our dumb things, so that we might recognize our need for his truth and his promises and his love. And when we're at rock bottom, when we're at that place of repentance, wanting to turn from who we are and lean into who he is, he meets us with love and mercy in that rock bottom place. And he says, you are forgiven. You are loved. I love this broken person. You are mine. Encouragement, confrontation, and freedom. And he makes us new. This is not giving up on them. This is entrusting them to Jesus. Trusting that that Jesus can do more with them broken than you can do for them by protecting them. Jesus can do more for them in their brokenness than you can do for them by protecting them from being broken with the system that you've built. It's trusting that he loves them more than you do that he knows them better than you do, that he is chasing after them, running after them, longing for their wholeness and their health more than even you do. But one of my favorite verses, I got a lot of favorites, I know, but one of my favorites comes from 1 Samuel. In the choosing of David, it says this, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's trusting that Jesus sees their heart and knows who they truly are and what they truly need. 
It's trusting that though you are tired and exasperated by their poor behavior, that Jesus never tires of chasing after the ones that he loves. And it's also choosing to believe that if Jesus is near to the broken, that he will be with your loved one when they're in their worst place. But also, if you're tired and you're empty and you're done, that he is also with you right now. It's entrusting them to Jesus. I know that this is not an easy thing to talk about, especially for those of us who have some people with some seriously destructive and dysfunctional things going on in their lives. Many of us have people in our lives who seem determined to run their life right into a tree. And it's hard to know what to do with it. But let me leave you with with this image. It's the image of a butterfly, and it's a popular one. It's an analogy that's used all the time, and so maybe you're familiar with it. I was reminded of it a couple weeks ago by one of our school teachers. When that caterpillar is turning into a butterfly and attempting to emerge from its chrysalis, there's a fight that endures. There's a battle that goes on. You just see it try to break free from what's holding it back and then fly free and fly beautiful. And there's this attempt, if you're watching that struggle, there's this attempt to try and help it out, to maybe kind of cut open the chrysalis and and make it a little easier for it. But those who really know how this works, they they will warn you against that. Don't, Don't ease the battle for the butterfly as it emerges because two important things are happening. In the battle to break free, it's actually forming and strengthening its muscles that it will need in order to fly. But it's also going through a very purposeful process of emptying itself of all of the energy that it's built up in that resting state. It has to empty itself of all of its energy so that finally, once it does break free, it has to sit on that empty chrysalis for a long time, tired, and exhausted, and the tiredness and the exhaustion and the emptiness is important because while it's waiting, its wet wings are drying and hardening and strengthening. So if you set it free early, it doesn't have enough strength. If you set it free early, it doesn't have the wings to fly. It has to empty itself. It has to battle. It has to be emptied of all of its energy so that it can be transformed and made into what it truly needs to be to fly free. The same is true for the self-destructive person in your life. When you rescue them from the battle, you are robbing them of the experience that they need in order to possibly be made new. And so I will pray for you that you would have the strength to offer encouragement, confrontation, and freedom to the destructive person in your life and that you will be able to trust that Jesus has his eye on them even more than you do. And I will pray for this person in your life that when they hit rock bottom, they might look up and see light. Let's pray.